Mark chapter 11. Got me on here. We are discussing prayer still, but it's not just a topic for us. Prayer, we're recognizing as one of the four elements that create the new wineskin. So prayer is in balance to the other things that we emphasize, life in the spirit, uh, community, and mission. All of those things combined together, that if we value those things and seize hold of those things urgently, rather than being distracted by other urgencies that make church in our culture, but rather lay hold of what uh, makes the church the church according to scripture, then we will have a new wineskin into which God will pour new wine. And so right now we're taking time to emphasize prayer and practically rededicating ourselves to praying in the spirit. It's something that has tremendous rewards for us. And it cuts the stones cleanly so that they can be placed together as a community. I don't know if you guys saw my blog. How many of you guys read my blog? There were only like five people that visited. You know, there was some more than that. But I wrote about um, how, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, when he says that prophecy builds the church, while, while praying in tongues builds the individual, that he's using construction language. And he's referring back in the Old Testament when they were building the temple. And it was very interesting to me uh, in that narrative of the building of the temple that the the stonemasons, when they cut the stones out of the quarry, they cut them so well, according to the story, that's quarry and story rhyming, by the way. They cut them so well that when when the stones got to the temple site for construction, they didn't have to be touched again by metal. There was, no, there was no sound of metal at the actual construction site because the guys at the quarry cut the stones in such a perfect shape. When they got to the construction site, they were able to just slide them together perfectly, which is an awesome picture. And I paralleled that to the power of speaking in tongues. It's a private prayer language. It works in public if it has an interpretation. But as far as a gift by itself, it's a private way of praying, but it acts parallel to cutting the stones, so that then when we're together and the prophecies come forth, there's a lot of work that does not have to be done, because it's already done by the individuals who are getting cut, so to speak, by the metal tools of the Spirit through speaking in tongues, then when we get together, prophecy fits us together into a house that God inhabits, and through which He reaches the world on mission. So the first thing I wanted to say today was just to remind us that Joshua and Aiden very eloquently encouraged us to do. Let's continue to restore the tongue of fire to the church. There's an element, even of our heritage in revival, that's recaptured when we're just praying in the spirit. So, by the way, um, along similar lines, thank you everyone so much for being so involved and participating in the things of the spirit during this meeting. It's just having the, you know, the worship team doing such an awesome job and everybody prophesying that did and, and praying together. Man, thanks for just coming together and having church. That's awesome. Things are, the Lord is strengthening our core. And that's, that's, that's happening. I've been under so much encouragement from the Lord along these lines 
No one big thing has happened, but thousands of little things have happened to encourage me about the strengthening of the core of this work. I call it pennies from heaven. And the Lord's been giving me a lot, giving us a lot, but I'm just testifying to what he's doing in my life. So one other thing before we get to Mark 11, I want to, without turning there, I just want to make reference to Ephesians 3 and Paul's prayer there at the end of that chapter. Paul prays for the Ephesians for a work of the Spirit in their inner person, that they would be strengthened in the inner man. And the purpose of that interior strengthening is so that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. And I felt earlier in the week as I was praying about my message, I I felt to speak on Mark 11 later in the week, but earlier as I was praying about it, that passage came to mind, so I felt like I should still exhort us a bit. I'm just going to speak briefly on on all these things. And that is that um, I just feel like there's the Lord's requirement is coming down from his throne to us. The manifestation of his rule in our hearts. And in order to ready ourselves for that, we need a strengthening in the inner person. Because it will require things of us that will not be easy to let go in our inner man. Now, if, let, let's say it won't... If, Maybe that's part of the hard thing, uh, the difficult thing that Terry was talking about. But I feel like the Lord will be moving in our midst. It will all be good. It will all be glorious, of course. But it will all require sacrifice. And sacrifice doesn't mean like a few extra bucks. Sacrifice usually means things that have to do with our lives. And the substance of the things that we're used to, perhaps even things that God has given us or called us to. And I'm not saying we have to give up all these things and we have to live in fear. I I don't know precisely what the Lord means. I'm only speaking generally. But I know that for him to rule in our midst, it will require a strengthening of our hearts. That's why Paul prayed that way first in Ephesians 3. That the hearts of his churches would be strengthened by the Spirit and, and by the Spirit's power in the inner man. And then he says, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So we need a move of the Spirit to strengthen us on the inside so that this great lion of the tribe of Judah can dwell in our midst as king. That's what Paul's getting at there. And of course in Ephesians, that belongs to the overall mission and purpose of God, which is what we're all about here. So I'm praying for all of us along these lines. I want to let you know that. And I also encourage you to pray for strengthening in the inner man. And to speak in tongues a lot. Because it's all for a purpose. Right? I'm not saying tomorrow like the big revival is coming and everything will be different. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm not saying it is. But I know we're going somewhere. I know things are on the horizon for us. There's things that's like the Pac-Man man. You're, you know, you, I don't know if, if any of you are old enough to know what Pac-Man is. But, um, you know, there's something to chomp right in front of us. And then there's the next thing and the next thing. And we're just going forward. So there's things already that we've been chomping and going for. God's strengthening our core and things are happening. I'm very encouraged by that. But we're also going somewhere to become a house fashioned by him and for him so that he not only dwells in it, but expresses himself through it. That then brings me to Mark 11. So let's look at this passage. Uh, This is the passage I felt the Spirit would have me speak from regarding prayer for this third installment. And I don't believe it will only be a topic for today. I believe the 
The Lord is going to give us impartation. I believe that He's giving us apostolic authority to help create a culture and a scenario that's prayerful. And one of the foundational passages for my own life in prayer and for my theology of the church as fundamentally a praying people is Mark 11. It's one of the things that Jesus declares and I believe lays out for the church all three Gospels uh, of the Sinai, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this story. John records a similar story. Some people think it's a different version of the same story. And some scholars believe it's, a, it's a, actually another cleansing of the temple. But earlier in Jesus' career, I tend to lean that way. Jesus did this more than once, but perhaps it was only once. In any, in any case, we have a version in all four Gospels. Mark's is the most vivid in certain ways. And it's, it's the, the most, uh, well, it's the most vivid, it's the most graphic, even in, in some of the details. And so it declares, I believe, laying out for the future, from Jesus' ministry into the future, the fundamental identity even of his church, and that is a house of prayer. Now that doesn't mean it has to have the format of what the modern house of prayer movement is doing. What they're doing is wonderful and precious. It doesn't mean we're all called to have that format. Okay? I don't believe we are called to have that format. So when I say house of prayer, I mean something more raw and primitive than the modern movement, which I love and endorse. But there's got to be something more at a foundational level that makes us a house of prayer that everyone is called to. So Jesus does this here. This passage has been very important, even to my teaching in Bible school for uh, the authentic church. And so I, I felt the need to invest it here as well. So right from the beginning, we'll read some of the story that set us up. And, and, and Father, we do pray that you'll unveil your son Jesus so that we see his beauty, that he would be magnified in our eyes and therefore also magnified in our practical lives because he's worthy, he's king. And in his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> now, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples <clears throat> and said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. <clears throat> if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has needed it. And immediately, he'll send it back here. So Jesus was either doing this by supernatural knowledge, or he had arranged it previously according to other supernatural knowledge. And he had it all set up. Jesus is very deliberate. And he's very careful about accomplishing his mission. And in this case, building his house. And he was setting himself up, as well as his disciples and the crowd, to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9. That this king would claim his kingship and would approach his city, God's city, the city of the great king, meek and lowly in humility, riding not the great war horses that we read other kings approach cities with, and our king will come again one day with a great war horse. Will he not? 
he will come down to the earth and march into Jerusalem on this horse. And the image was strong in the days of the Roman Empire. You know, the Caesar, Augustus, the august one, the awesome one, would come with his entourage on his war horse, exerting his power, making a declaration of his own divinity as well as his empirical power. This king in his first installment, our king, would not come with such pomp or outward glory, but would come revealing the source of his royalty, that is his humility, riding a foal of, of a donkey, riding on a donkey in, in meekness and lowliness. Now this is significant for us for a couple of reasons. Number one, because with, with this, this whole story in which Jesus teaches us on prayer has to do with the kingdom. Prayer is not just our attempt to be spiritual or something we got to do when we got to plug our time clock in. Prayer is about getting the kingdom on the earth. And to put that another way, when we pray, we have authority and dominion. And we support the dominion that we preach and pray and do other good works with. It all comes out of prayer. Prayer is the practical source of our authority. And it is an expression of great humility. So it's the awesome kingdom of God. That is what is supported and, and, and is fueled by prayer. Its expansion is fueled by prayer. And, and it takes a lot of humility to pray. We have to shut ourselves away from other things. Okay, pride is not just about being pompous. Pride is about being filled with a lot of stuff. Being consumers. Get, getting, being involved in a ton of things. Having just a lot of stuff. Even the right amount of stuff is amount of pride if that becomes first place. And we're not humbling ourselves before the Lord in prayer. So this is the nature of this king, which means it's the nature of the kingdom. He comes riding on a foal, on a donkey. It's a sign of humility, and it's a sign of the kingdom. That's our king. So how much more appropriate is it that his people, therefore, extend his kingdom through prayer? So in verse 4, they went away, found the colt, tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Of course, these are the shouts of welcoming the king. And they are claiming, therefore, that they believe that this young man from Nazareth is the Messiah. Something that's not going to be a popular thought in a minute. But right now, at least the, the, the children, we read about Luke, and the, the, the hoi polloi, the, the people of the land, they're all on board, but the leaders of Jerusalem will turn them away by and by. Jesus knows this very well, and he, one of the reasons why he knows this, of course, he knows it for many reasons. He understands his mission. One of the things he sees lacking is the core of a Judaism and a Jewish people who are capable of receiving him. 
Just as I exhorted us earlier from Ephesians 3, this is something that Jesus sees here. At their core, they are not a people of prayer. They cannot handle this king. As soon as he's unveiled in his true nature, remember, the thing about Jesus wasn't just that he was Messiah, but he came in a style of Messiah that the Jews did not expect. Extremely surprising. And he's that way for us too. He's just not the God that fits in any of our boxes or is made easily in our mold. He's just not that way. He always surprises. He conquers by dying. He comes into life by dying. He conquers by, how did he get exalted? By lowering himself. He belongs to a kingdom that to us is completely upside down and backwards. And it cuts against our nature. And that's why we're, we're, we're incapable of embracing him as he is even in his next move if we're not preparing ourselves through prayer. And that's what's happening here. He's like, I'm coming on the donkey, just like it says in prophecy. But the, the leaders of this city, and, the, and they're going to have the influence over the people, they're not going to receive me because they are not people of prayer. They're not people who actually have fellowship with God, and therefore have the actual touch of God on their lives. So he has to condemn that brand of Judaism. He's not condemning Jewishness or replacing that nation by any stretch of the imagination. What he's doing, he's condemning any form of religion that claims his name that doesn't pray. And when I say prayer, I don't mean just saying words. Our master taught us that's not what prayer is. Because the Gentiles think they're going to be heard because they use many words. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the actual knowledge of God that is connected to him. That has fellowship and interaction with him. Which I said is a sign of humility. That's what I mean by prayer. It's not just the activity of prayer. It's the spirit of prayer. It's covenant. That's what prayer is. Prayer is covenant. Prayer is relationship. Prayer is fellowship. And at our core, if that's not who we are, it doesn't matter what else we do. We're not going to be able to handle this king. I know I can't. I know I won't. The man who stands you before you right now can't do it without drinking in more grace by prayer. In any case, there is the immediate reaction, oh yes, Hosanna, absolutely. Such as it is with us too. Oh yes, amen. We have a quick amen. Like, do you understand who this king is? He's king. That's why it says in Ephesians 3 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. It's a reference to his royalty. Not just his last name. <laughs> Hence, I feel this is impartational and revelational, rather than just we're discussing a topic. There's an urgency. Something I've fallen in love with about this atmosphere in the last couple of months. Feeling like what is spoken prophetically or through teaching, whether it's in this setting or other settings, that it's becoming the life of all of us, rather than just another sermon on a Sunday or whenever. Which I myself do when I travel and preach. Or have done in the past. I know God puts the message on my heart and I speak it and I know that you know if it's of the Lord it's going to have impact and change eternal value because I value all of that but I've never been a part of a community where there's like this this prophetic strategy of the Holy Spirit where the things are spoken and not just taken seriously but taken seriously in the spirit and then eyes are all on encouraging one another and taking that thing and moving forward with it practically. I love that. The sense of that is growing for which we will be responsible. And it's happening today. So look what happens after all this shouting in verse 11. 
Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Now that's a detail that Mark gives us, the others don't. Those of you who have heard me speak on this before, you know that. You probably know from reading your Bibles, but I hope I'm not too redundant in my message. To me, it's fresh. To me, it's the first time, every time. He looked around. It was anticlimactic. He was not coming in to pronounce himself the king. He rather came into the temple and he spied. He was evaluating. There are echoes here of Malachi 3. When it says, I will send my messenger, and then the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and he will purify his people with fire. Paraphrase. So we have Jesus checking it out. All right? He's not doing anything. He's not saying anything. Forget making messianic claims. He's not doing anything, according to Mark. I mean, the other gospel writers don't even tell us this happened. Mark tells us. could see him walking by some of the booths and the money changer table, nodding his head. See you tomorrow. <laughs> maybe you didn't say that, but that's my own sarcastic version. Hey, you know, maybe a little greeting. Shalom, shalom. He says, shalom. And he's thinking, I'll see you tomorrow. He sees all the activity. The currency being exchanged so that it could be used in Jerusalem. The sacrifices being sold, knowing full well these aren't coming from people's hearts. This is one giant business. And we're all shaloming one another. I will see you tomorrow. Now that's a significant point for us today. That Jesus didn't do anything the first day. He did it the second day. Verse 12. On the next day. I told you. When they had left Bethany. He became hungry. Right? So he enters Jerusalem. He checks it out. He goes to Bethany to sleep. The next morning. They're leaving Bethany, coming back to the city, and he's hungry. He hasn't had breakfast yet. So he sees at a distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now our response is, Lord, isn't that a bit of an overreaction, seeing as how it's not the season for figs? Have you, have you let your... We know this is not true, okay, but have you let your, the, the, the demands of your belly cloud your spiritual perception? It's not even the season for figs. Why would you expect it? Well, I think one thing that we have here, we have to read into this a bit. Uh, the king should get fruit from his tree when he wants it. A house of prayer is not subject to the seasons of nature or the seasons of men. A house of prayer can bear fruit even in the middle of winter or even in the midst of a famine. Roots go down deep into the 
soil that's full of nutrients and God's moisture. And even when the outward terrain is barren, devoid of life, maybe completely washed with the white of snow and the brown of its, you know, its, its unfruitful state, it's bursting with fruit. The nature seasons aren't necessarily God's That's the point here. Now, agriculturally, at this time of the year around Passover, the actual beginning stages of figs would be appearing. They're not edible. They're not ripe yet, but they'd still be there. Then they would ripen in May, and then more would come back in the summer. But they're not edible at this point either way. But if that's what we're supposed to be sensitive to in this story, then what's being said here is this tree doesn't even have those buds. It's only leaves. And so Jesus acts out a parable and curses a fruitless tree. You'll never bear fruit again. A people bearing my name who don't pray will no longer be the tree I choose to bear my fruit. That's over. From now on, prayer is the fuel that makes the mission go or it won't go. Heaven help us if we find the tools to make the mission go without the power of God that comes from prayer. The Church of the West, in so many ways, has mastered the ability to make the mission function without the power of prayer. And Jesus has already said, no, that's not going to bear real fruit. I've already, I've already determined that with this parable. It's interesting to me, at the beginning of verse 13, that Jesus sees the fig tree from a distance and it's in leaf. A, a plant can look alive and thereby implying that it's fruitful and able to share its life with others. It can look healthy from a distance, but when the master comes up close to inspect it, he'll know whether or not there's actual fruit being born. You see how that goes? So there's a parallel between the tree and the temple. Jesus is checking both out closely to see if the Hosanna on the outside, isn't it interesting that they laid leaves on the ground? The Hosanna were like the leaves. It makes it look like a living tree. When in fact, when you come in the temple and look around, there ain't no fruit here. It looks alive from the outside, but on the inside, ain't no sap. No roots, no system, no vibrancy. Same thing with the tree. From a distance, got a lot of leaves. What good is a tree? A fig tree with no figs. The church could look great from the outside. It could be the fastest growing church. It could be gigantic. There could be multitudes of people. There could be the buildings. There could be all the success stories. And, and praise God for anything that does, happens good in any church, whether to the max or the minimum, wherever Christ is proclaimed, AM, uh, amen. However, it can still look very alive to human eyes, but not be alive in divine eyes. The only way to accomplish actual spiritual fruit is through a people that actually pray. They get a hold of God and they they fellowship, they cry out, they pray in the spirit, they groan. They praise, they worship. But it's about God. There's actual connection with God. As Jesus promised us in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. 
you'll bear much fruit. I'm smashing that passage together, but it will bear it all out of you if you go back and read it. So Jesus says, I'm not operating this way. I'm not going to operate through a temple, through a people who don't have at their core an oven burning with fire in prayer. I'm not going to do it. Because that, that, without prayer, you don't have me. Without me, you can't do anything. So if you can do things without me, it's the wrong thing. It's the Tower of Babel. Lighten up, dude. Okay, we'll go to the next verse. By the way, do you see the two metaphors here? The parables, there's the tree, there's the temple. They're parallel. The same message in both entities. Same exact message. And both of those are metaphors for God's work in the church. They're both apostolic metaphors. You plant the church or you build the, 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 the temple construction or the, the planting of a tree are both metaphors for church as expressions of the kingdom. So in verse 15, then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And then in verse 17, he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. Now just FYI, since I usually teach this passage, I thought I'd give you a little teaching here. Verse 15, Jesus cleanses the temple. Verse 16, he controls the temple. And verse 17, he dedicates the temple. This is the action of one who has messianic authority. The kings of the Old Testament, when they served the Lord like a Josiah, he feared the Lord when he was old enough to do something about it. He cleansed the temple, they found the Torah, all of this. Those are signs of a king's authority. So that's why Jesus gets flack for doing this. Because who is this guy? Okay, he's famous, yes. And he is well known as a prophet, at least. But who does he think he is? Completely sidestepping, circumventing, whatever. All the established authority of our little world here, whether it be Roman, whether it be the Sadducees, the, the temple aristocracy, the Pharisees, scribes, elders, the, the, the scholarly religious people, the conservative bunch, the right-wing Jewish dudes who, who, who were recognized by the people. He has no connection with any of these guys. We don't even know what rabbinical school he was part of. And just takes over. He physically took over the temple. First he cleanses it, he physically removes people. Now, I know this doesn't apply to anyone here, but anyone among the millions of people listening by internet, if you have an anger issue and you're calling it the anointing, this message is not for you. You're not allowed to go wreck some church you don't like. This was Jesus who was completely centered and connected with God in prayer, as we shall see. He was not sanctifying his anger issues. This doesn't give us license to go physically destroy things. Jesus was meek and mild, meaning he didn't have his own agenda. This was God's agenda, that's why he did it. It was not their temple to treat in such a fashion. So Jesus, therefore, was authorized to go cleanse it. 
He drove them out. I mean, can you imagine what this looked like? This young man. I mean, he, Jesus was angry, but he was not a raving lunatic. He wasn't going nuts and wielding swords, and therefore they were intimidated. There was something else happening. There was something in his countenance and in his eyes and in his voice and in his actions where people submitted, even though they did not want to. And check this out, guys. Even though they could have physically fought back, and purely physically speaking, in terms of how many Jesus stood for, which at the moment was himself, one young man, and versus everybody else, purely naturally speaking, he could have been overcome. But no one touched him. He just did. He just drove him out. Picked the guy up on his arm, moved him out just like this. Excuse me, out here you go. Take the stick, boom, just turn it right over. There's coins going everywhere. All the currency from other, uh, other national ethnic groups in the Roman Empire. Then use the Judean currency to buy the, to boom, just spread out everywhere. Out, 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 out. And just push them all, clearing the place out. And the place just starts to just sound like this, start to echo the outer court. And then in verse 16, he doesn't permit anyone to carry merchandise. Hey, excuse me, excuse me. You're not coming in here. You, yes, out. Okay. And the dude just backs off. Maybe he's, you know, pulling his little trailer. He's got his lamb on him. He's got other lambs in here. Other one's got another box of doves or something. Maybe another guy's carrying some boxes with the right kind of coins. More guys are coming in. And Jesus is like, no, you're not welcome in here today. But who's that guy? I don't see a badge. I don't see a special hat. His special robe. No one's with him. No staff. He's just... I don't know. I just... I'm going to do what he said. Now, you and I are like, well, he's just Jesus. Oh, it's not that simple. Yes, but it's not. he's not the mythical feast. He's not the mythical creature of our biblical fables. This actually happened. A young Jewish man from Nazareth cleansed the temple and stopped anybody from coming in further when they could easily have physically overcome him. This was not magic. There was a re- there was something happening psychologically and emotionally in the other people that put a restriction on them where they would not touch him. They would only do what he said. So then he controls it in verse 16 and then verse 17. He dedicated He basically says, this is not a house of merchandising. This is a house of prayer. Even though by cleansing it, he was effectively saying, I'm not using a prayerless house anymore. My cleansing is parallel to my cursing of the fig tree. I'm getting rid of this. I'm not saying he's getting rid of the temple ultimately, because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's not getting rid of Israel. This is all Israel shall be saved. I'm saying a fruitless, prayerless people of God, no matter what their name is, he's not using them anymore. He's done with that. That's old covenant. New covenant is, he's using a temple that prays. So he's not only dedicating this old temple, symbolically, he's dedicating us as a house of prayer. Amen. I believe, since this message is prophetic, and I believe apostolic, the, sh- the, the sheer message itself is dedicating this house as a house of prayer. Cut the ribbon. See the ribbon going like this? That's what that is. And we're all like, 
I believe it's what I prayed for, and I believe the Lord will release grace in prayer. If it's not a house of prayer, it's a robber's day. Or if we take John's version where he says, stop making my father's house a place of business. So if it's not a house of prayer, it is a place of business. Or it's a robber's den. One or the two. Probably either one aren't very pleasing. Isn't very pleasing to the Lord. But the house of business, it could be overtly a merchandising kind of atmosphere where it's just all about salaries and it's all about selling product. Or it can be less overt, maybe much more humble and modest, but still it's the arm of the flesh operating the thing and not the arm of the Lord through prayer so that essentially it would be a house of business even if it ain't a business outwardly. Does that make sense? If it's not a house of prayer, it is a house of business. Even if it's modest and not very business-like in a secular sense. It would be before the Lord. It's just business. It's, it's the exchanging of human resources to get God's work done rather than the exchanging of God's resources to get God's work done. It's business. So by default, if there's not a fire of prayer, that house is a house of business. Or worse, it's a robber's den. Where if that in which case, the house of God itself becomes a place for thieves to hide. In other words, all they're out to do is gain for themselves, whether it be money or fame or whatever else. They want it for themselves. They don't really care about other people. They just want it for themselves. And how do they get away with it? Why they hide behind all the shandas. behind the, any outward form of a Christian goodness. A beautiful building, a Holy Ghost little step or something. Maybe even some miracles. They'll hide behind it when all the time all they're doing is they're just consuming, consuming, consuming. You like that, Mike? You're going to be able to get over that? <laughs> That's, what's that? <laughs> For you, if you even call that dance Mike makes you a true friend or a liar but you're not a liar so you're a true friend when I read a passage like this you know I, I thank God for other people and the temperance of the spirit just allow me to say okay there's mixture out there and all of us have mercy when I think about the business and robber's den that much of Christianity in the west has become a ploy to make money something the Corinthians were in danger of when Paul wrote them 1 Corinthians. You're, you're, you're now using my gospel to elevate yourself in this world. And you're using my gospel. Some of you my name, some of you Paul, some of you see But you're doing it to make yourself great in, on the world terms. That's what you're doing. So you're using Christianity to hide the fact that you're just robbing people. And that's one of the Corinthians' issues. They were taking one another to law court to defraud one another. Okay. You get the idea. We're not now, I don't think we're like any kind of you know, business or robber's den. We're, we're a house of prayer. But we just ask for more grace to increase. Okay, now let me try to get to my final point here and then give you some practical things. 
course, the chief priests, scribes, they heard it in verse 18. They're seeking how to destroy him, but they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Now, according to Mark's version, the disciples had not seen the fig tree withered yet. In the other versions, they had already seen it, but that's because they're just not giving all the details Mark does. They're getting right to the fact that that fig tree withered right away. It was miraculous. Mark wants to show us a little bit more of the deliberate chronology of how that happened. So they went after the cleansing of the temple. They go into the city for the evening in verse 19. Now it's daylight again. So when they passed the fig tree going back to Bethany, it was dark. Now they're coming back past the fig tree in the light of the new morning. In the morning they're passing by. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded of what happened, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answering them said, have faith in God. Like, okay. No, let's talk about the tree. No, no, I am talking about the tree. You gotta have faith. That's what I'm talking about right now. Faith. Well, what do you mean by faith, Jesus? Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen. It will be granted him. Okay, commanding mountains. All right, faith, I got you. Verse 24. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray. See, when Jesus said faith in verse 22, and commanding mountains directly in verse 23, underneath all of that, and part and parcel to all of that, is verse 24. It's called prayer. The kind of faith Jesus is talking about that removes mountains is the kind of faith that's praying. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you want to know how I spoke to a fig tree and in one day it's gone? It's withered up? Something that would take much more time. The thing was all green and leafy. Some kind of disease affecting that tree wouldn't happen in 24 hours, would it, Mike? Not according to the word. Check with you, though. <laughs> It was clearly a miracle. How did you do that? Well, I had faith that was backed by prayer. Okay, so you're teaching me on faith-filled prayer? No, listen, listen, disciples, listen. When I saw the temple, I looked around and went home. The next day, I cleansed the temple and was untouched. Right? One day I cursed the fig tree and then went to the temple. Next day, you saw it, it was withered. What do you think happened within that gap of time between looking at the temple, going home at night while you guys were sleeping, and then coming back and cleansing the temple untouched? What do you think I was doing? Says Jesus to his disciples. I'll tell you what I was doing. I was doing exactly what I taught you to do in verses 23 through 25. I was praying with authority. That's how I was able to do what I did. But you're Jesus, you can just do it anyway. My being Jesus means I pray first. That's what it means. It's not just for the people who are weak and needy. Prayer is a part of who Jesus Christ is. So if he has a, a temple to cleanse, 
How do you think he's going to do that without being touched and everybody listens to what he says? The night before, he's praying by himself while everyone else is sleeping. And whatever it sounded like, he said, Father, I know what this day is for. Open up the doors for me. Oh, and then he sees in the spirit that mountain that's in his way that would stop him from cleansing that temple. And he says, Mountain, I speak to you, be taken up and cast into the sea. Yes. Thank you, Abba Father, for your mercy and grace. He's probably quoting scripture constantly coming out of his heart as he's praying through the scriptures. I personally believe something I cannot prove. It's an opinion. I believe he prayed in other languages that he didn't know. I believe he was the first one to do that. So I believe that's just my opinion. If that wasn't happening, then take the rest. That's what he was doing at night. He cleansed the temple the night before in prayer so that when he got there in the day, there was a zone he could just walk in that was already created. It was the secret. It's called prayer. And all of this particular ministry had to do with building God's house. Which is very ironic. Because the kingdom needs a house for its palace. So even just to establish a work, I mean, the whole thing has to be done in prayer. And then the action comes out of the prayer. Or the, the action gets, like, throws itself in the inertia that the prayer created. It's a remarkable system. It's called life. It's living in its vibrant. In fact, he alludes to the mountain in verse 23, where he refers to the mountain... It's this mountain. It's not a mountain stopping me from doing what I want to do. It's the mountain stopping me from doing what God wants to do. It's this mountain. Sometimes we see mountains that aren't mountains. They're, 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 we think they're restricting us, but they're, or they're stopping us from doing what we want to do. But God doesn't want to remove it. Because that's your agenda. But when it's God's agenda, and there's a mountain in the way, it looks intimidating, but it must be removed, and it will be removed. This is an allusion to Zechariah 4, when they were building the temple. They were rebuilding the temple after exile. And the people of the land, the foreigners, who did not like these Jews returning, were discouraging them. Do you remember that story? Zerubbabel and Joshua... And Zerubbabel was responsible for the temple being built, but he stopped building it because he was intimidated by the threats of those in the surrounding territories. And so God raised up prophets like Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah is the one speaking in Zechariah 4, hence the name. And he says, you're going to build this temple, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Good old Pentecostal verse has a context. And what does he say? He says, this mountain is going to become a plain, and Zerubbabel will finish this temple. It was a mountain in the way of their finishing the temple, which is the same context we are here. What Jesus is up to through prayer is building his house. And when there's a mountain in the way, it's so ironic. How do you build a house of prayer? You remove the mountains to the house of prayer through prayer. How do you build a house of prayer? You pray. That it becomes a house of prayer. You're even just like the Koreans do. The Korean Christians, they pray for their prayer meetings. When we get together for the other prayer meetings, the first prayer meetings have already prayed for those prayer meetings. It's like everything is prayed about. This is this 
kind of prayer activity is what makes Jesus the actual foundation to a house. It gets so filled with his vibrancy, the, the, the mission just unfolds before it. Because beforehand, supernaturally, in prophetic prayer, you've already paved the way for the mission that God himself is sending us on. Usually happening through a praying and then prophetic community, like Acts chapter 13. By the way, in verse 25, when you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven, in verse 26. So the, the, our relationships have everything to do with the effectiveness in our prayers. And that's important enough to pursue, but we won't have time for that. So I want to give you a few practical points to take home. I, I have, not a few, excuse me, I have ten, but I'm going to list them quickly. So, write these in your hearts. You won't need to write them down on paper because I know you'll remember them. But if you do need to write them down, you can. Just some practical points, encouragement, and tips for developing a deeper prayer life so we can walk out of here having something imparted to us. By the way, the tenth thing will be we're going to pray about prayer. Really quickly, okay, you ready? Number one, determine to follow Jesus. Jesus is a man of prayer. There's no such thing as following Jesus and not being a prayerful person. Don't put any heavy on me. It's all by grace. Yeah, I know. I'm not saying he's throwing you out if you don't pray enough. You have to pray a certain amount. I'm talking about something much more beautiful, much more grace-filled, much more dynamic and relational than that. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then follow him. He's a man of prayer. He taught on prayer and he prayed. He was constantly slipping away by himself to pray. He was always in prayer. His disciples watched him pray. Luke 11, they said, oh, teach us to pray. They saw his intimacy. They saw his, the impact of his life. They're like, you got to teach us to do what you do. And he did. I'll talk about that in a minute. So you, we have to come, we have to own up to the fact that our Jesus is a praying man. <coughs> And if we're his followers, then so are we. This is a Jesus name. Number two, got to put it in again. Let's restore the tongue of fire. We've been encouraged now by two brothers, Aiden and Joshua, extra. Keep this thing going. The Spirit's saying this too. We're not graduating from our last meeting together when we stapled in praying in the Spirit. Let's keep that going and increase it. Restore the tongue of fire. I personally believe that that's how we fulfill prayer, pray without ceasing. If, if that's not the only way, it's one of the major ways. How can you constantly be in prayer? You have to have the ability to pray in tongues, which is a gift of the Spirit. I love the dedicated time, but tongues also gives us the ability to pray when we don't have time to pray. Not that we shouldn't carve out time to pray, but this way we don't get under condemnation. Well, we're not under condemnation because of grace, but we still ought to be praying. And sometimes you feel bad, even when you know God still accepts you, when you couldn't get your prayer time in. Then pray as you go. That's why you have your tongue and the, the, the tongue of fire. You can do it then. And fill your day with prayer. It's awesome. Do you guys feel bad after I gave you number two, or do you feel good after number two? You guys feel good? Okay. Because if you feel bad, I'm sorry I'll correct you. Any bad theology that makes you feel condemned, and I'll do my dance again. No, I won't do that. I'm just kidding. Plus, it's not bad theology. I'm just joking. I hope. Okay. Number three, make an appointment. 
It's, it's really good for daily prayer to have an established place and an established time. If that's not possible every day, do it as much as possible. If it's impossible to you, because you're a firefighter or you're a mom, and you may not be able to have the same the same, the same thing, firefighter. You know, you know what I'm saying. Do it. Do your version of it as much as possible. I believe Jesus practiced this, and yet he traveled. This, he would still scope out a place at a time, because you know it says in Luke 11 he was praying at a certain place. Like he knew. He'd have to scope things out, you know, or he'd send the crowd away and go up farther on the mountain and be alone. He had his own, like, itinerant version of this. So look, we're not making ourselves feel bad if we can't do this successfully tomorrow. Just start to build these things in as much as possible. An appointment, a routine, by establishing a certain place and a certain time. For your private prayer. We already talked about praying as you go, so we can move on. Number four, pray the, the prayer the Lord gave us in Matthew 6. For song we sang today. Practice praying that prayer every day as much as possible. And the more you learn about what that prayer means, then you're not just reciting it, but you're praying through it. Our Father who art in heaven becomes the whole point of prayer. Something I may be able to send you a very simple teaching on how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. I wrote something for my job the other day. I may be able to give you a, a, a bootleg copy of it. It's just not my property, but I'm sure I can send something out by email. You know, no big deal. Just as long as you don't use it for your mailing list. Because someone else is going to use it for their mailing list. And that would not be cool. Edit this from the recording, Josh. I'm just kidding. I doubt they would mind, but just keep it private among us. If you want that teaching, I don't know how to go past this. I'd better move on. Number five, pray specifically as you're led. Don't, don't just think of prayer as a big blob. Pray for specific issues as the Spirit leads you. And that's especially good if you're following the Lord's Prayer. Then you'll have the specific prayers in the right context. But pray specifically. Don't just only pray generally. The general prayers are good also. Number six. Talk to one another about this. Encourage one another. Perhaps small prayer groups will generate out of this. Either way, we have to encourage one another. Because there will be resistance to our prayer. And we have to be able to feel that we're not failing even though it seems we're failing. We can't be left to feel that way. That's wrong. That's from the enemy. I've noticed that the Spirit, when I've gone through a time when I haven't had the kind of focused time in prayer that I've wanted, when I finally go back to prayer, sometimes my heart will go to say, Oh man, why bother now? And then the Spirit says, No, I love this. Come on. The Spirit's always encouraging, even when I feel like a failure. So we need to keep that chatter among ourselves, encouragement when we hit roadblocks. My point is, talk to one another. Number seven, believe that your prayers delight the heart of God. Even your weakest prayers, says Mike Bickle, and I'm going to believe him about prayer. He's mostly right about prayer. I'm sure he's all all right. He says, even our weakest prayers, God delights in because he loves us so much. And that just encourages our hearts. Let me tell you something. You were were, uh, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and physically designed for prayer. There's something that you contribute that's unique to you when you pray. Through your take on things, your emotional makeup, 
the way you articulate things, just the impact that your soul has in God's presence affects him very deeply and uniquely. You're a very important contributor to the tapestry of prayer. So really trust and let this trust motivate you that your prayers, even the smallest, faintest prayers, delight the heart of God because he loves you so much. Number eight, focus on the results when your soul gets weary. Especially praying in the Spirit, the end result is power and authority to carry, to build God's house and God's mission the way Jesus did. Focus on the results. Think of the rewards according to Matthew 6 and not just the task of prayer. Think of the rewards. Number nine, remember your calling. Okay? I have only two points left. I'll be very brief. This is important. I see Mike Harry waving at me. Just kidding. He's not. He's paying good attention. That's why I'm messing with him. Remember your calling. I hope this doesn't mess with you too much. But whatever calling God has on your life, and whatever fills your life that's important and God-given, even more fundamental than that, is your call to intercede. I have a ministry. I have a job. And I have a family. Especially... I mean, Especially the ministry and the family. Those are two prominent things God calls you to. If you're called to the ministry. This is like vocationally the way I am. But then on top of that, I got my job. My job mixes, you know, mixes the two. And that's an important calling. I've got to spend a lot of time on all three of those things. More important than that, more primary than that, is my calling as a man of prayer. And that's not just rhetoric or the, 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 the statement of the, someone trying to be pious. That's true. Our first calling in life is intercession. Tell yourself that a little bit. That'll mess with you. God gives us grace. That's the tenth thing we're going to talk about. But what if we dare to believe that our calling to ministry, our spouses, our children, our businesses, all of that was our second calling, and our first calling was prayer. What if we dare to believe that? It might make things a little complicated at first. God will give us grace. He doesn't intend us to take the next five months off. We lose all income. But we've been praying. By the way, I bet if anyone dared to do that, you'd be surprised at the results. It would be tough at first. But I'm not saying he's saying that. We, we have to take our lives the way they are and let grace bleed into them and start to soak the whole fabric. All right? So we have grace to move deeper into this. But still, I believe we have to be honest. Our first calling is a holy, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, to stand before God and offer sacrifices and, and intercessions. It was, I mean, Jesus was a pretty busy guy with some important things to do. Beneath it all, he was first called to prayer. I don't know how he did it. He prayed when everyone else was sleeping. Of course, he slept when everyone else was praying. That may be why he was able to do it. But you get the idea. Let's dare to embrace it. It will take more courage than, uh, than I have right now. And, and that, I, that perhaps some of us have. But it, it takes a lot of courage to believe our primary role in life is to pray. Man, come on, we got to preach the gospel to the lost. Man, come on, i got to... Yeah, amen to all that. That's all true. Get to the foundation of that. The more other things you give me besides prayer, the more you magnify prayer. Because prayer is beneath all of it. Prayer is Jesus in action. So he's the foundation, which means we pray. And tenth, pray for your prayer life. Pray for your prayer life.
pray for the prayer life of others. We need prayer. God promises His people, which reverberates to the church in Zechariah 12 and three references to Zechariah today, that He will pour out upon His people the spirit of grace and supplication. So I like the fact that the word grace comes before supplication. For all of our ministry of prayer we're called to, God first gives us grace to do it. So it's good just to pray for that rain that we read about in another verse. Here's a fourth reference to Zechariah. What's that one in 12? Chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, where he says in, this, in, this, in the time of rain, in the time of the spring rain, pray for rain. So let's parallel that here. Let me do a little scripture interpreting scripture. Let's pray for this grace. Instead of diving in tomorrow and trying to be the perfectly well-oiled prayer machine as individuals and as a community, let's start with the wave of just praying for prayer to increase in our own hearts, families, and churches, and overall work. How does that sound? And let's, as we close today, let's make this our first prayer for prayer. Let us stand together, and I will close us in prayer by praying for prayer. Prayerfully praying a prayerful prayer about prayer for the future of prayer for others to pray. Our Father, we come before you with humble hearts, trembling with joy and the fear of the Lord. Needing you, uh, thanking you for speaking to us from the scriptures about a calling that's too deep, too high, and too wide for us. It's impossible. Praise the Lord. Therefore, you give grace to make the impossible possible. We praise you for this privilege, for this highest calling of priesthood that then unfolds into any and every other kind of calling that you give us. Therefore, we pray that you will pour out upon us right now and in the coming days the spirit of grace and supplication. We pray for grace even to see Jesus, the pierced one, as he is. That we might mourn over him in intercession and for a world that's lost. Lord, we ask you first and foremost for the outpouring of the spirit of grace. That you might strengthen our hearts to pray. That you might strengthen our hearts to find the time, to find the word, to find the strength to pray. Lord, it doesn't begin with our will. It begins with your grace. So Jesus Christ, great King, Apostle, and High Priest, we ask you for your spirit. We pray for more of your spirit, the spirit of the High Priest, as a grace to us, Lord, an enablement to take us to places of prayer in our time and in our minds and in our hearts that we've never dreamed we can go. Lord, let today be an impartation. Add something to us we did not expect. May it grow inside of us, Lord, like seeds growing quickly, roots going down, stalks going up. Lord, we ask you, grant us this grace, Father. Grant us the grace of prayer. Give us the grace of prevailing, overcoming prayer. Give us the grace of worship and thanksgiving and intercession and praise and longing and adoration and and languishing and groaning and tongues and everything else that has to do with the spectrum of vibrant 
fellowship with you. Oh, give us grace. Father God, give us grace in the mighty name of Jesus to be conformed to the image of the Son who is a praying man. Lord, may prayer start to pop out of us naturally. Lord, even as we need to develop schedule and discipline, may there be something more fundamental and organic and primitive inside of us beginning to pop up, Lord. Just times of prayer, awakenings in the night, Lord, earlier morning, uh, things caught during the day, whatever it may be, Lord, let these things just begin to rise in an ocean of grace in our midst. Lord, be very generous with this grace, this spirit of grace for prayer and supplication. Be generous to us. We pray for impartation. We want to be your people. We want this new wineskin. We want the new wine. We want your purpose. We want your plan. We want the glory of Jesus. We want your mission. We want to live this life the way you want us to, Lord. We, we don't want to live it our way. We, we want to fulfill our purposes. We want to fulfill our destiny. So, Lord, we pray for a generous outpouring of the spirit of grace and supplication. That prayer to us might be indeed the springtime of life and the very breath of our being. Not a religious task, but something deeply organic and, and a matter of covenant love. Jesus is King. And may His heart just enter our hearts in a fresh way today. In His name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Thank you so much for your participation and extra time today and everything happening. So, praise God. God bless you.